Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Herman Simon is the founder and honorary chairman of Simon Kutcher and Partners, today the world's leading price consultancy with 41 offices and 1,600 employees. From 1995 to 2009, he served as the CEO and is now the firm's honorary chairman. He is an expert in strategy, marketing, and pricing, and the only German in the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame of the most influential management thinkers in the world. In German-speaking countries, he has been continuously voted the most influential living management thinker. The magazine Cicero ranks him in the top 100 of the 500 most important intellectuals. Herman was a professor of business administration and marketing at the University of Mainz and Bielefeld and a visiting professor at Harvard Business School, Stanford, London Business School, INSEAD, Keio University in Tokyo, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Herman has published over 40 books in 30 languages, including world bestsellers on hidden champions and price management. His most recent books are True Profit, No Company Ever Went Broke from Turning a Profit, love that title, and Hidden Champions in the Chinese Century, Ascent and Transformation, both published by Springer Nature in New York. His new book, Beating Inflation, will be out this fall of 2022. In this episode, he shares with us the number one thing most companies get wrong when setting their pricing strategies, how to deal with inflation, how to know when and by how much you should be raising your prices, how new technologies are opening up the possibility of evolving into new innovative pricing models that we should all be considering today. Ladies and gentlemen, Herman Simon. Herman, thank you so much for being here with us. Kaihan, welcome. So I always start the podcast with two questions, the same questions for everyone. The first one, this is more for us to get to know you a little bit personally, so we may have nothing to do with your work, your response at all. If you could complete this sentence for me, if you really know me, you know that. That I am coming from a small village, grew up on a farm, and I grew up in the Middle Ages. 1950, in the <laughs> Eiffel region of Germany was the Middle Ages. Ah, so that's Bavaria or? No, that's uh, Rhineland, close to Luxembourg ah. and uh, Belgium. Excellent. My father grew up outside of Frankfurt as well. Second question, this is a podcast on strategy and you certainly focus on pricing strategy, but also you will focus on other elements of strategy. What is your definition of strategy? My definition of strategy, I learned at the officer school of the German Air Force. 55 years ago. Strategy is the art and the science to deploy all your competences to achieve your goals. Love it. So you can apply that across any domain, obviously military business. Strategy, as I said, I learned it from the military. In their definition, a little more military content, but I reformulated it to apply to business and practically to science as well. Got it. Excellent. So I have so many questions to ask you. We won't have time to get through all of them. And I am pulling some of these from strategy officers that I get to talk to. So kind of representing them as well. But let me start off with pricing because you're known for many things, but you founding your firm and your brand is pricing. What do companies typically get wrong when they set price? I have been asked a question thousands of times. I what know. is I the know. most important aspect of pricing? There are always one answer. 
its value, value to customer, or more precisely, perceived value to customer. And even the old Romans understood that they have the same word in their Latin language for value and price, it's pretium. So this is a challenge to generate, to understand, to communicate value. Because the customer's willingness to pay is nothing but the reflection of the perceived value. So the biggest mistake, weakness is not to understand, to generate, to communicate value effectively. Great. That's great. I, I would love to dig further in that communicating value. So there's one strategy officer that I've interacted with a few times recently. And just to give you the context, the B2B context, he sells to large contractors that sell to the government. They sell very complicated technology systems, some of it military. And he also wants to communicate value, but he's having difficulty doing that because they bid him against others and they kind of have a set format. And what his key strategic initiative right now is for us to get good at communicating and selling value of our systems. How do you approach that kind of challenge? I think the first step is to really understand the value drivers and perception of his customers. That's difficult because they may not know it themselves. So he really has to dig deeply, talk to them, maybe do a survey. There it starts because only then he can deliver value to these customers. And I expect that in this case, the value profile of the customers will be very different. So he has to understand these differences to segment accordingly. And one finding of my hidden champions, these unknown mid-sized global market leaders is that they are much better at integrating technology and customer needs. So value is generated by the integration of technology and customer needs. 65% of the hidden champions say they are very good at that. Only 19% of the large corporations say that they are good at this integration. Yes, I can see that. You use the word hidden champion, and I'm familiar with that term from you. Can you explain what a hidden champion is? I defined or coined this term 30 years ago because I found that the continuing export performance of Germany does not depend on the large, well-known corporations like BMW, Mercedes, etc., but on our so-called Mittelstand, mid-sized companies, which are global leaders in their field. And over the years, I detected about 4,000 in the world. And 1,600 are from Germany. And they are really outstanding. Often they have more than 50% global market share, but nobody knows them. So they are champions on the one hand, and it's a contradiction, they are hidden. And if you enter hidden champions into Google today, you will find millions of entries. And my books have been published in 30 mm -hmm. languages. In China alone, they sold more than 1 million copies. The Chinese are fond of this concept. Yeah, it's an outstanding book. So let's talk another scenario, and then I want to go into a few interesting pricing models that we're seeing emerging and asking your opinion about them. So here's another scenario. It's pricing, but let's say pricing on the back end. Here's a company that hires tens of thousands of staff that are fairly lower level staff, and they staff different facilities around the world. And during the COVID crisis, what happened was their competitors started paying very high salaries. And the issue is it's hard to go down in price when you've gone up in price and salary. And she thinks, 
that the behavior of competitors is not really sustainable or logical, but it's damaging the market. So what do you do when your competitors are behaving irrationally? That happens to be a description of reality. In our global studies at Simon Kutcher, we usually find that 60% of all companies are involved in price wars. And price wars are the most effective profit killers. The main cause of price wars is overcapacities. So you cannot solve this problem just by trying to get a higher price. You must somehow try to convince the industry to reduce the overcapacity. For instance, we had one case in paint shops for large automotive factories. There were only four competitors in the world, but each of them had overcapacity and they didn't make money for years. Then in the Great Recession of 2010, one dropped out, one was taken over, and since then they make money and the stock price is six or eight times higher than it was before this. So you have to go to the roots. Why is it aggression? Is it wrong goals? Is it overcapacity? to find the root of the problem. Why do companies set the prices so low? If you have overcapacity, you need work for your people, yeah, you price aggressively. But that leads ultimately and eventually to a disaster. Yeah, it seems that you're talking about the structure of the industry and what the nature of the marketplace is and who the competitors are. And that in times of change, in this great inflationary environment that at the time of this recording we're experiencing, that there is a tendency to behave irrationally. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? I'm thinking particularly about your concept of phantom profits and the new book that's just released or about to be released on inflation. What do companies get wrong in an inflationary environment? The new book is Speeding Inflation and there is an illusion. Costs are increasing, energy costs, raw materials, electronic ships, all the costs are increasing. And it's naive you believe you can just pass through these cost increases to your customers. That is a version of cost plus pricing, which I actually call Marxist pricing. Why Marxist pricing? Karl Marx's most famous theory is the labor theory of value. That the value of a product is determined by the input of labor. That's, of course, nonsense. If you make the best steam locomotive in the world, nobody will buy it in spite of a lot of labor going into that. So what you have to understand is how does the willingness to pay change with your customers? Do you have the pricing power to increase your prices without losing volume and customers? For instance, Apple, if they increase their price by 10% for the iPhone, they would not lose many customers. Whereas if Samsung or Huawei do the same, they would lose. 30% of their customers. So understanding what changes are there in willingness to pay, what is your pricing power? That is the big challenge of inflation. And one lesson I learned when writing this book, inflation is not confined to pricing. It concerns all functions in the company. Cost management, procurement, Mm. cash, finance management. That is the role of the CEO to change the culture, to make everybody aware that we all have to fight against inflation and contribute our part. And the last point is, our finding at Simon Kutcher is that we have now 2,000 people, so we are really a mid-sized consultancy worldwide. You can recover about 50% on the price side. You have to do something on the cost side that can contribute 25%, and then the rest you have to swallow. It is an illusion 
that these high inflation rates do not affect your profitability. They do. You have to accept some decline, at least until things have normalized. Yeah, this is fascinating. And it's bringing up so many questions. But let me start off by asking, how do you think about in an inflationary environment or an environment where inputs or prices are going down, how do you think about when and by how much to change prices? Because sometimes companies are raising prices too slowly or they're continually raising prices and then the customers get fatigue or they try to get ahead of inflation, but maybe then they're not competitive. How do you think about how to set your prices given a change in input prices? If you look back at the last 30 years, we had an average inflation of less than 2%. That meant you increased your price prices modestly, moderately once per year. Now we are at almost 10%. It means costs are going up continuously and you have to increase your prices more often and with larger increments. It's a mistake to wait a couple of months and then to have to raise your price by 10% or so. Then the results, the profit of the year will be gone. So more frequent price increases in steps in smaller amounts instead of one big price increase every 8 or 12 months. Months. And this puts, of course, extreme pressure on your sales force. They were used to go once to the customer per year and ask for a modest increase. Now they have to do it every two months. We typically see, if I look at the tire industry, Michelin, Continental, big manufacturers, they've already increased their prices four times this year and will go for more increases in the coming months. So more frequent, modest amounts. But you have to get before the cost wave and not to raise the cost wave. And you have a term that you use, phantom profits, that I think helps people understand if they're ahead of the wave or below the wave. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, with regard to profit, we have different problems. One is real profit. If we have 10% inflation and everything goes up 10%, you report a growth of 10% in your revenue, etc. But if you take inflation into account, you haven't gained any real value or real profit. Phantom profit is another thing. You bought a machine five years ago, it costs $100 and you have to replace it in two years from now and it costs $200. But you are only allowed with a taxman to depreciate the purchasing the original price. So you have a gap in your financing of $100. You actually have been taxed $100, which were not real profit, but phantom profit. And there's no real solution to that. At least for your price calculation, you should calculate with the replacement cost and not with the historical costs. And to the largest degree possible, you should form hidden reserves where you use the tax regulations not to show something as taxable profit, but to keep the money in the company to be able to replace the machine after X years. Gotcha. So we should be setting our price knowing what the actual market price is. What the opportunity costs are, what you have to pay for this performance, this depreciation of the machine today, and not what you had to pay 10 years ago. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. I want to go a little bit into some pricing innovations that we're seeing and you're seeing. There are different kind of pricing models that we're seeing people explore that I think could help you manage, for example, inflation. So I'm wondering, are there any that come to mind ways of changing the structure of pricing? 
anything that you're suggesting to clients or the clients consider today? Yes, we just had a project with BASF, the largest chemical company in the world, and the manager said, when do we change our price model if not now? To give you an example, which illustrates such a change very nicely, truck tires. Michelin, the global leader, introduced a truck tire which lasts 25% longer, drives 25% more miles. You cannot increase your price vis-a-vis the trucking companies by 25%. They have an anchor, say, which is $1,000. You cannot go to 1250 So they changed the price model to price per kilometer. They have sold this contract, this new pricing model, to many trucking companies, to school buses, to cities in the US, etc. And that is accepted because it's a small amount. It reflects the actual usage and the trucking companies like it. If the truck stands idle, they don't have to pay anything. Of course, these new models, right. as in this case, may require sensors. You cannot register that manually. You have to measure it automatically. And this is just one case from a transaction price to price pay per use. Or if you look at the sharing economy, actually the sharing economy is an idea which goes back to Socrates, the Greek philosopher 2,500 years ago. He said the value of a product does not come from the ownership but from the actual use. So that is the sort foundation of sharing. Why didn't it appear in reality? Because we did not have the technology. If you sell an electric scooter at $1,000, it's one transaction. If you sell it by the minute, it's thousands of transactions at minimum amounts. And that could only be handled through the internet and modern technology. So we have had more pricing uh, innovations in the last 20 years than in the 2000 years before, driven by technology. Yes, right. Instead of saying selling a coffee maker, let's say, I know a gentleman that selling equipment in Africa, in poor areas in Africa, these equipment has sensors, he can sell it by use and that makes it much more accessible. Yeah, that's the model. Another model is going from one-dimensional to two- or multi-dimensional pricing. Here I have an example mm-hmm. that is the bond card, as we call it in Germany, the rail card issued by the German Railroad Corporation and this card costs $500. Why do I buy this card? Because it gives me the right for a 50% discount count on all tickets for one year. So this means with regard to inflation, I am only infected half by the inflation. If the ticket price goes up 10 euros or dollars, for me, it goes only up $5. So this splits the pricing into the price for the card and the price for the ticket. And it's a great loyalty builder. The German Railroad sells 6 million of these cards. Really? Oh, wow. Fascinating. Amazon Prime is also two-dimensional. Prime price, now 100 and 39 dollars in the US and that's the normal price you pay for your product you order there. Yes. Yes, that's a perfect example of that type of structure. What about transparency and pricing? I know you write a little bit about pricing and because there is more information about pricing, but over here in the United States, for example, right now, a lot of people are talking about this company Cost Plus Drugs, which is owned by this famous billionaire Mark Cuban here. And the model is there's price opacity in prescription drugs here. Companies can kind of set whatever price they want and we don't know what the cost is. And this company is saying, this is how much it costs me. We're going to charge this much in margin. We're charging this stuff in the delivery fee. And this is what your cost is. I'm seeing that in different places. Are you seeing price transparency being an important trend? If you look at the internet, one of the biggest effects is that it creates price transparency in the sense that you can easily compare prices for airlines, for hotels, for everything. At your fingertip, you get the information. And I think this is a future wave that companies reveal their cost and margin structure. We 
have also a very famous case in Germany called Tea Campaign, a tea company, e-commerce, and they reveal tosy smallest details, the prices, the shipping costs, the purchasing costs in India, the manufacturing costs, etc. And I think that creates a trust on the consumer side, and I see that as a future wave in pricing to offer transparency. And it also has an interesting side effect. In my book, True Profit, no company ever went broke from turning a profit. I describe mm -hmm. studies on what consumers perceive about the profit margin. We did studies in Germany, the US, and in Italy, for instance. In the US, people in the street believe that the net profit margin after all taxes and cost is 31%. In Germany, 22%. What is the reality? In the US, over the years, it's about 5% net profit margin. In Germany, it's even lower, 3.4%. Mm -hmm. So I think if consumers see that the profit margins are much lower than they think, this creates a different kind of relationship between the consumer and the vendor. And it builds trust. Few people would object to profit margins of 5%, but they certainly object to profit margins of 30%. Fascinating. So I hadn't thought of it that way, but that would be a way to determine whether becoming more transparent in pricing will be a net benefit or not for you is to see what do customers perceive your current margins to be and are their expectations higher or lower than what they actually are. Employees are consumers. They are the same people. And if they think you make as an entrepreneur 20% or 30%, they behave differently than if they know that you actually make only 3 or 5%. Because then the buffer against mm -hmm. inflation is very, very small. Yes, which goes to running your company with an open book and letting employees know what your finances are or not. I mean, yeah. in B2B, um, that's already customary, especially with regard to the automotive industry and their vendors. Open book policy mm -hmm. is not accepted by everybody, but it's very, very common there. Got it. So I have got so many questions, but it seems that a lot of it is coming down to fairness. What's perceived as fair? What is the customers perceive as a fair price that a company earns? In the United States right now, at the time of this recording, there's a lot of talk of record high profits by corporations. So the stimulus that was injected in the economy was captured unfairly, it's perceived by some people, by corporations. I think also as we move towards ecosystems, that's something that's coming up often is if you're competing in an ecosystem, you try to extract too much profit. That's not sustainable because eventually it won't be viewed as fair. And then the last area, I know I'm building in a whole bunch of different things here, is externalities from environmental impacts. So you ask someone, hey, will you pay a higher rate for your energy and you're buying green energy? I don't know how many customers choose that, but certainly it seems that a lot of the externalities that were embedded in pricing, keeping prices lower than they maybe should be, were those revenues to cover the external costs of global warming, that those are starting to be incorporating into pricing. So how do you think about fairness of margin and pricing? Fairness certainly plays a role. Externalities, that is a difficult issue. I am hearing from many manufacturers, also farmers who supply bioproducts, so grown without pesticide, etc., that they are giving up this business because under the inflationary conditions, consumers are no longer willing to pay that. So on the consumer side, that's often also a lip service to pay more for green energy products, etc. So we have to be a little cautious there. But long term, 
long-term trend is clear that these externalities have to be made internal. If we look at the cost of the global logistics systems, the 100 biggest ships exhaust as much pollution as the whole the passenger cars in the world. And this is not allocated in terms of cost. As far as the huge profits, especially of the tech companies, are concerned, in my opinion, we have a historically unique and first situation. There are several mm -hmm. things coming together. If we look at the profit formula, profit equals price times volume minus cost. And the most important factor there is that their marginal costs are zero. If Google adds one customer on the advertising side or Facebook one customer, the marginal costs are zero. So marginal costs are zero. The volumes are extremely high. They have billions of customers. And then the price relative to the cost is also very high. So all three profit drivers Ten ports, high profitability. And there are two things which we have to observe, two dimensions, so to say. Their profit margins are indeed more than 20 or 25 percent of Microsoft, of Apple, of Facebook, of Alphabet, Google. But it's not only the profit margin. Their size is huge. Apple has a revenue of 368 billion. And Google takes in a load from advertising 208 billion. So we should look at it has a rectangle with an extremely high margin and an extremely high baseline. I think that is not tolerable in the long term. I mean, if I compare it to Germany, Apple or one of these companies alone has a bigger market capitalization than the 40 largest German corporation, all the car makers <laughs> and the technology. And that be it's a strange relationship, which is not in the long term sustainable. Society and regulation is always a factor, I guess, in pricing or always has been. So that might be part of the correction. The busting up of Standard Oil 1911, when Standard Oil also had a monopoly, the oil market. And I think something in this regard will happen in the coming years. Okay. I have so many other questions to cover, but we are reaching the top of our time with you. So I've got two last questions. The first one is, is there anything that I didn't ask you that you want me to ask or that you did not get to say that you want to say? Yeah, we didn't talk about globalization. And in globalization, I hope that the future will be peaceful and uh, say the conflict between China and America will not turn into a hot war. And the main trend in globalization is that exports are being substituted by foreign direct investment. So we will see a total fundamental reconfiguration of the global value chain. Tesla builds a huge factory in Germany, which has started. Intel just announced $17 billion investment in Germany. Companies go to China. Actually, investments in China are still increasing in spite of the tensions. And so we will see, I call it relative deglobalization of exports and an increase in direct investments in the target market. And I think that's both political and environmental considerations. I hadn't thought of that. I thought of companies retracting to produce closer to home. But that makes a ton of sense that instead of exporting, you're building production capabilities in the markets, closer to the market that you serve. German companies, especially these hidden champions, are running more than 2,000 factories in China. So far, we have only wow. five Chinese factories in Germany, and I expect a wave of investment from Chinese in Europe. So we will have more balanced structure. And the same is true for America, China, America, Asia, America, Europe. Do you think that makes for a more stable geopolitical environment? Yes, I hope so, at least. I hope so. Yeah, because now we have stakes in each other's economies. 
Thank you. Last question. We only scratched the surface really of what you cover. And I so appreciate you distilling some of the key concepts and lessons and advice here. But how can people continue to learn from you and follow you? My homepage is Herman Simon, one R, two N, Simon.com or Simon-Kutcher.com. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the work that you do and for taking some time to share with us, Herman. My pleasure. Hi, Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor, and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers.